Hello and welcome to another episode of the One Drink Book Club. Today we're going to be discussing Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. The book tells the true crime story of an Alabama serial killer accused of killing six people who were all related to him in one way or another. Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, researched this story and worked on a book about it for years, but was never able to complete it. Casey Sepp tells the story that Lee couldn't seem to finish and also provides us with a moving portrait of one of America's most beloved authors. Tonight, I'm joined by Kathy Hookstra, a good friend that I met through a business connection, but soon found out that we had another connection. Kathy, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for accepting the suggestion of this book. I'm really excited to talk about it. I thought it was a great suggestion and I really enjoyed it. There was a lot to unpack with the whole book because it was really almost like three books in one. But I want to go back to, I said that that we met through a business connection. Tell the story of what our other connection is because I thought it was truly small world story there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, um, I am from Grand Rapids, Michigan, born there and um, lived there until I was 12. During that time growing up, I went to uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic Elementary School. And um, lo and behold, all these years later, you and I meet as grownups, uh, like you said, through a business. In Washington, D.C. Yep. Washington, D.C. We've had the opportunity to work together um, uh, off and on various uh, projects together. Lo and behold, talking to Jamie Bowers, I find out Jamie also attended Immaculate Heart of Mary Elementary School and is uh, lived in Grand Rapids or grew up in Grand Rapids for part of your childhood. And you yep. were a grade below me. You were one grade younger than me. Yep. Very funny to find that out when we were we were closing that circle on those, oh, you were living in Grand Rapids, I lived in Grand Rapids. Oh, where did you go to grade school? That's right. And, and, and while I, you don't remember me by name, I don't remember you by name, but we have a lot of like, remember a lot of people in common. I remember a lot of people in your class and you remember some of the people in my class. So yeah, totally small world, but but a very cool connection to have. Definitely. Well, since it's the One Drink Book Club, uh, I have to ask, what was the drink that you came up with inspired by Casey Sepp's book? After reading this book um, and knowing the sort of the general what's in the ether out there about Harper Lee, that she had a really bad drinking problem in her adulthood. And a lot of people point to that, a lot of critics over the years point to that as being the reason that she never completed a second novel, um, it, per se, in, in her life. Well, we, well, we can talk about this a little bit when we get into um, that part of, of, of this book, because it's really, really revealing, I think. But to sort of respect that a little bit, I took a different tack. And we can get to this part of the book, too, this, the, the center part. My drink, I'm taking it from uh, the portion of the book called The Lawyer, which we'll get into. Um, but a, a, a big primary person um, involved in it sort of ties the two uh, parts of the books together, the beginning, as well as Harper Lee, a uh, big Tom Radney, who is a, a larger than life figure in in the law in Alabama and politics and all this stuff. And he, he features very prominently in this book, which, of course, is a whole section dedicated to him. He was the, the, the guy in the book. He was a famous defense attorney, very progressive guy. 
And he's kind of reminiscent of, of today's sort of almost like the personal injury attorneys, right, that you see advertised on TV. But when you meet in real life, they're kind of these larger than life figures. They're the kind of guy that, that goes around a small town like Monroeville, Alabama, where um, Harper Lee grew up or Alexander City in this case. And he knew everybody in town. And that was part of what he was so successful. But he knew everybody. He knew everybody by name. He knew everybody's um, you know, ties to each other and the businesses that and what they did for a living and who they knew and who their neighbors were, what they liked to drink. So I thought, you know, this is a guy who would be a very interesting person to meet. You know, one of these guys, when you say, hey, the three people I'd like to invite to Thanksgiving dinner, big Tom Radney to me seems kind of like that guy. Right. And sure. so I figure, you know what? It would not take long for him to figure out what I would like to drink. So it, it's a little bit boring, but, you know, all of this is kind of baked into it. It is one of my favorite red wines. It is, uh, it is a paradox. It's a lesser sort of popular uh, version or lesser prominent version of the whole family of wines, the duck horn decoy that you see in the supermarket a lot. This is a different, it's paradox. It's part of the same family, but it's sort of this more of a one-off uh, winery in Sonoma. And I've had the chance to go there and had one of the most pleasant experiences of my entire life at a wine tasting there. And this is the proprietary red blend, which is one of the only ones I can find anywhere in Michigan. So that is what I have, proprietary red wine. It's got beautiful legs and um, I've just been waiting for an occasion to open this bottle. So I'm really excited. And I, I'm like, I think Big Tom would probably buy me my own bottle if we sat down and had it broke right together. There you go. Well, that's excellent. I had to think about it a little bit. I, I I did a little research on Truman Capote on what he liked to drink. Apparently, he was a big fan of the screwdriver, his orange drink he referred to it as. So, But I decided to go with, and I thought I was being very um, creative, and I did uh, Tequila Mockingbird, which is really just a, a spicy margarita. And then I found out that other people had had come up with the same joke. In uh, fairness to them, I cannot say that I was the first person to come up with this idea. But it's a perfect, you know, play on the Tequila Mockingbird. So, cheers to you. Interestingly, the book has three parts. Well, part one is about the story of Reverend Willie Maxwell, who could have been a voodoo priest, but he was a reverend who basically killed. A number of his relatives, he killed his first wife, his second wife, his brother, his nephew, his neighbor, and finally his third wife's adopted daughter. And he basically put out life insurance on every one of his victims, some of them unbeknownst to them, and then collected it. I mean, his first wife, he had over a dozen life insurance policies on her, and then Big Tom Radney, the lawyer, his lawyer got him off on his first wife's murder and then went on to help him collect these life insurance policies for him. Because obviously the life insurance policy folks smelled a rat here when he would take out a life insurance policy on somebody and then weeks or months later would try to collect because the person was dead under dubious circumstances. And so clearly all of these were alleged because he was never convicted of anything. But at the end of the day, at his at the funeral, for his third wife's daughter's funeral, that girl's uncle turned around. He was in the pew in front of Reverend Maxwell and shot Willie Maxwell three times in the face, killing him, basically saying, hey, this is payback for all of these people you've killed. It's time you went down. 
And so it was a really interesting story, really interesting true crime story. And that was really part one of the book. Second part of the book is all about Tom Radney. And then the third part is really like a biography of Harper Lee. Which one of those was your favorite? Which, you know, which parts did you like of each of those? Uh, well, I liked them all, of course. I, I think I really appreciated the third book, the Harper Lee part, because um, I don't know about you, but I read To Kill a Mockingbird my freshman year of high school. And, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have the information at hand like that. So the most I knew really about Harper Lee, except for when she passed away, you know, reading a little bit about her then was very rudimentary English, one, English lit 101 body of knowledge. And so in my mind, I had this picture of Harper Lee as sort of a a one hit wonder and just floundered around with her fame from To Kill a Mockingbird and just unable to to write her 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 next novel and you know a huge drinking problem in my head. I thought, oh, that was you know, like a lot of other people that that was primary reason and sure. This this author, she takes everything a step further, I think, in each part of the book. She really takes her time and to, to flesh a lot of these things out. And when it gets to telling us the story of Harper Lee's life, I, I just feel like I know Harper Lee better a, as a result. And, and even more so as I'm reading about her and kind of her struggles with her, her struggles with writing happened long before she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, right? She, she, to her, it was sort of a burdensome exercise. And a lot of it I can relate to. I feel like, oh gosh, I could see me doing that. I could see me being this person who collects years and years and years of research and never does anything with it. Writer's block, imposter syndrome. I feel like I can relate to a lot of these things. Uh, Harper Lee was quoted as saying, I I'm more of a rewriter than I am a writer. And I'm like, oh my God, all of these things were like, yeah, that sounds like me. I feel like that a lot. And feeling I can identify with, with a, a, a lot of what she was going through. Getting a little further on, you know, we talked about you know her, her big reputation for drinking. And the author of this book, she treated it so well. She thought that, yeah. and as I was thinking too, that, you know, it sounds more like to me because Hemingway was no less prolific a writer um, because of, you know, his his drinking. Steinbeck, same thing. You know, all these, these are people, and Truman Capote, uh, but they were prolific writers. So that just doesn't jive with that keeping her from writing. So to me, it seems more like today's terms, there might be an ADHD type thing going on or, you know, something like that. But she was in a time where, you know, she, she and, and a lot of people rejected what was a burgeoning field of psychiatry and psychology and mental health and things like that. So that wouldn't have even been on her radar. So I thought it was it was treated very sensitively and and very well, I thought, by the author to kind of flesh all of these things out and just kind of let us sit back and go, oh, there's so much more to Harper Lee from her younger and formative age to, you know, her, her career and then end of life. And it, it was just I just feel so much smarter as a result. You know, I, I also really liked the insights into Harper Lee's life and her struggles with writing. I Personally, what I took out of it, there was a couple of things that really led to the fact that she could not finish this book. She could not publish a second book. And I think the first thing was the success of To Kill a Mockingbird. It became so successful so quickly. And she was also quite a perfectionist. and so. I think knowing that you'll have a very, very hard time 
coming up with a sequel or not even a sequel, but another book that even comes close to the success that To Kill a Mockingbird had has to be very daunting because you think, well, even if I write a good book, it's going to be compared to To Kill a Mockingbird. And there will be critics, there will be people who say, ah, To Kill a Mockingbird was a fluke. This person isn't a good writer. Look at this. We don't like that. And so that's where I thought, geez, this seems like a really obvious reason that would be a barrier to coming up with something else. I thought the second thing was the people who were helpful in getting to Kill a Mockingbird over the finish line were her editor and her publisher, both who became very good friends of hers, but helped her rewrite To Kill a Mockingbird, showed her where the problems might be, encouraged her to go in different directions. And they were very instrumental in getting that book finished. And they both got too old at a certain point to be, they both retired or died. And they weren't able to help her get this book, uh, the book about Reverend Willie Maxwell, out of the, you know, re-editing, editing, editing phase. And the other thing I think she was greatly influenced by, so there were the two things I just mentioned, but the third thing was her work with Truman Capote on In Cold Blood, which I never realized she had such a key role in that. I mean, Truman Capote hired her to be his researcher, and she went with him and was largely responsible for all the interviews he did with the family members, the the murderers themselves, the, the, the police officers. Apparently, he was very off-putting to these down-home Kansas folks. His kind of New York quirky affect just did not go over well with this crowd. And so Harper Lee was there with her kind of Southern charm that really got him access to these people. And she was a little disappointed while she was publicly very supportive of the book. She was a little disappointed with Truman Capote's treatment of the truth. And so she did not really approve of the things that he either fibbed about, kind of twisted for his own use in the, the narrative, or just made up flat out. Uh, she knew the things in it that were wrong, and she knew that he did them on purpose that way. And so she was really put off by that. And so I think she felt a lot of responsibility not to do that in this case. Yeah. And and what's interesting that you learn about her um, is is that they they both had two completely different approaches to their writing, right? I mean, Truman Capote, his mother and, and Truman moved in next door to the Lees when she was young and actually lived there full time for about four years when they were young kids. But yeah. at the same time, you and I were going to elementary. <laughs> it's already about the same ages, right? Yeah. It was like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old. And then his folks um, moved up uh, to New York. They remember serving um, some sort of um, they were kind of in show business type things up there are, you know, performance type things. But he kept coming back down and would spend summers there. So the two of them developed this friendship together. They read together. They also would go to the local courtroom and they go sit up in the in the cheap seats and, and watch trials happen. And then as soon as high school was done, Truman Capote said, I'm not going to cut. He just went straight to New York and, and just went off and started writing and traveling and doing all this stuff. And as you said, you know, he was very he was very flamboyant and, and you know, city and cosmopolitan and, you know, went to Morocco and Paris and all these places. Whereas Harper Lee went the route that, you know, her 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 folks expected it to her, her dad, especially she she went to college First, she went to a girl's school. But then she said, oh, yes, kind of like I would probably if I would have gone to a small <laughs> college my first year. She said, you know, I, I'm not that this isn't for me. So then she went to the University of Alabama, which also I think is um, interesting and timely, because when 
as we're recording this, Michigan plays Alabama coming up on New Year's Day. So anyway, I feel that connection too. She's roll tide. And then she went to she went into law school. Um, her her dad was an attorney, and then but her sister um, actually became a practicing attorney, and she was going to follow suit. She dropped out just shy of getting her law degree because she was starting to see Truman Capote having all the success in writing, and she said, "Oh." Gee, you know what? I've learned all this stuff. Oh, and she also grew up. Her dad uh, owned a newspaper, so she grew up writing stuff for her dad. So she she goes and she moves to New York, and she's got to work. She's she's very you know she had to work her way and was only able to write during her spare time. And she you know she scrimped and pinched to make ends meet. But going back to the writing style, she even she admits she she had never taken a class in creative writing. She came from a journalist slash legal you know writing background, whereas Truman Capote was writing and yeah doing imaginative stories and I I totally get why she looked at the final product and said wait just a second because she spent I can't remember, like a year or or some some it was a some, year of not, research yeah. Know. Um, and and as you said, she went around and she was largely responsible for getting these these interviews with people. Because can you imagine? Here's Harper Lee, and then Truman Capote marching into a small town in Kansas where he sees extravagant and flamboyant and kind of standoffish. He's big city, and she comes in and instantly made people feel at home. And th- there was a, a a line from the book. She said, um, "Truman Capote saw." a story in everything that they were doing. She saw families. She saw people. She saw the... the, And that was how she was able to make the personal connection. And um, one other note on that, the way she helped him, which was fascinating to me, is that she took all these interviews, everything, and observations and, and facts about people and little tidbits about people, and she organized them. She typed up all these notes and she she categorized them. So Truman Capote was right. Oh, and all of this was being done, by the way. She had submitted her manuscript for To Kill a Mockingbird, and it hadn't come out yet, if I'm, if I'm getting right. 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 There's part, yeah. Well, she was doing all this research yeah. after she had turned in right. the final so she, so final book. Right, yeah, you know, that, that hadn't quite come out and become what it was at the moment. It was get it was just about ready to take off. She's in Kansas helping Truman Capote doing all this. So basically, by the time Capote was ready to write, she could just hand him all this, everything here, he had everything he needed to write this book because of her uh, being a research assistant. And I thought, wow, because I could see myself doing that for, for a, a, a writer. Anyway, it was oh. stuff I had no idea. The other thing I thought was kind of interesting is I think she latched on to this story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, which was a great true crime story, but it does have a lot of problems with it if you're trying to write a true novel, because there is no real hero that you can, a protagonist in here, because you can't interview Willie Maxwell. He's dead. There are so many rumors that surrounded the guy, and she had a really hard time coming up with real facts. Reverend Willie Maxwell was African-American, and this is in the 50s and 60s in the South and Alabama. So there was very few records that were kept. All the newspapers in Alabama at the time were covering white lives. You know, here's what happened in this community. And they largely ignored the African-American community. So there there was nothing to kind of really glean as facts. And then you had Tom Radney, who was this very conflicted character. He was very interesting, but he wasn't quite a hero. He got Robert Burns, the person who shot Maxwell and killed him, he got him off, 
But he wasn't exactly a true hero. I think Tom Radney used the case where he got uh, Robert Burns off as a way to resuscitate his own image in that community, because I think people saw him as a guy who got rich off of this serial killer reverend who was uh, an evil guy who offed his relatives in order to collect insurance money. And Tom was the guy who helped him do it. And so he was kind of seen as, as you said, kind of an ambulance chaser. And he resuscitated his image by taking on Robert Burns's case and getting him off. And as you said, he was a, he was an interesting guy because he was a progressive politician. He believed in civil rights. He was kind of this interesting Democrat in Alabama at the time because he was kind of go, swimming against the tide of a lot of the folks who were segregationists, who were looking at things. And, and Tom was a defender of civil rights, but he also you know, made his money in this kind of shady way. Uh, so I think Harper Lee had a problem with this book in that it didn't have a whole lot of facts and it didn't have a true hero that people would get behind. You know, you, you didn't really root for Tom. There was not a whole lot about Robert Burns. He just kind of showed up and got mad because his niece had gotten killed and, and killed Reverend Maxwell, but it wasn't like he had a big backstory either. So I think she picked the wrong story to follow. It was interesting that Casey Sepp did this, but I think this story doesn't hold, the, the Reverend Maxwell story doesn't hold as a full book. It is a great first part of this book, and I thought Casey Sepp did a great job of turning it into a book by adding in this biography of Harper Lee and all of those things. But I think Harper Lee ended up trying to chase down this thing for years and years and years, which was something that just wasn't a good choice for the for her second book. Yeah, I, I, that that's a really good point. And I wonder if the Reverend story were to be done today, because I think you bring up a really good point about um, there not being a, a cut and dry protagonist. However, I think the way a lot of our popular culture in terms of storytelling has evolved since then, because uh, that was kind of in the 70s um, when Harper Lee was looking into this stuff, it was maybe 15 years after To Kill a Mockingbird came out of the gate, made her famous. Back then, everything had a, you know, a, a clear cut protagonist, right? And an antagonist. You had a hero, you had villains. And we still have that kind of thing. But to me, when I watch the treatment of stories these days, whether it's in television miniseries, whether it's in a movie, whether it's even in a, a lot of books, those lines are a lot fuzzier now. It's like they're they're a lot more fluid. And I, I've had discussions with people talking about this sort of evolution. Some people I know lament the fact that the protagonists aren't as clear cut. The good versus evil isn't as clear. But to me, I think I actually kind of like that because I, I feel like that's more realistic. That's life. And there's so much gray. Everything isn't black and white. You know, there's so much gray. And I, I like the way that that sort of thing is being explored in, in modern storytelling. So maybe in a different time, perhaps. But I think, like you said, the author Casey did a really good job of sort of picking up what Harper Lee had done and doing something with it in a way that invites us into that story, the whole evolution of a lot of things that were explored, even in the limited fact base that we had. And then um, having that segue into, into Harper Lee's life. I, I really liked all that. Well, I thought she did a good job of filling in facts that were adjacent to the story. So, and what I mean by that is she went into, for example, the history of life insurance and how it evolved in 
this country and, and how it was treated at the time. And, and as I mentioned, you could at that point put life insurance on anybody you wanted to. And so there was all these kind of crazy schemes going on and it wasn't a regulated industry. So she gives a lot of that background, which ARF is factual. It's interesting and it, it is applicable to the story, but I don't know that Harper Lee would have gone into that. She does the same thing with voodoo because many people thought that Willie Maxwell was a voodoo priest. And so there wasn't a lot of facts over whether Willie Maxwell was or wasn't, but Casey goes into a lot of details about the history of voodoo and how it was treated in the South and, and what it was and what it wasn't, all of which was interesting. It kind of remember, I don't know if you've ever read The Great Train Robbery by Michael Cripe, and it's a great true story, and it's a true crime story, but it, it's not quite enough because all of his history with that comes from the trial and he has the transcripts of the trial. And so what Michael Crichton does in that book is he fills in lots of details and facts about the Victorian age, when it took place, what were the the habits that happened and, and what were the, the environment that all of this happened in, which made it a very interesting story. But it was his way of lengthening it into a real book. And I think Casey Sepp did some of that same thing. And maybe Harper Lee just never was able to figure out where she could plug her facts in. Yeah, that's really, I, I was going to bring that up as well. And I mean, even just starting right out of the gate, the first portion of the book, which is about the Reverend Casey, the, the author of this book, goes back. She starts out by talking about the um, the history of Lake Martin and how it was the, the, the power company and, and the and even going back further into the evolution of energy companies and and uh, you know damming up lakes for for hydroelectric power and, and all of that and that was how this Lake Martin formed and that it, that you know displaced these people or whatever but you know it, it was just to me fascinating it got into property rights and eminent domain you know <laughs> buying up properties I know you like yeah for for my uh, you know professional life at, at Pacific Legal Foundation right and so that instantly like my radar went up going, oh, wait a minute, there are all kinds of angles to this, to this, that I learned things I didn't think I would when I picked up the book. Yeah, I think that was a great device to add real detail, add real perspective to the story. And especially when they're just, there's a limited of num number of facts that you can draw on. I mean, these people died. Like I said, it was allegedly Willie Maxwell. If I had $100 to bet or $1,000 to bet, I'd say he was responsible for all of them. Yeah, but one of the things, Jamie, probably for for people who are listening who might be a little bit confused, the fact pattern, and again, that, not really being a spoiler because it's it's all baked in there and, and you can read it, is that each person that the reverend uh, is alleged to or suspected to have killed, he had bought, unbeknownst to them, ton of life insurance policies on each person, sometimes within a very short matter of time before their their death, even days. I think his first wife, um, who was the first alleged victim, was just a week or two before. And he, he had, I can't remember how many, something like 10, 15 life insurance policies through all these different companies. And he spent, like you said, Big Tom Radney spent most of that time fighting with the insurance companies to get the um, life insurance uh, uh, paid out because he would get half of it. So there's a lot baked in in there. Oh, yeah. It was clearly you would not be able to get away with this today because you could not go out and buy life insurance on, on strangers, essentially, or people that without their knowledge. And then you couldn't do things like buy 
15 different policies from 15 different companies, then try to collect weeks after you've purchased them. I mean, in some cases, he may not have even made his first payment and he was he had the ability to collect. And that's where he needed Tom Brandy's help because there were several of these insurance companies who said, no, clearly this is there's foul play here. This was this looks like a murder. But Radney showed that he was a good lawyer and was able to collect on almost all of these. And really, Willie Maxwell was a pretty good criminal. There was not a lot of criticism of the local police in this Alabama town because they really did try to convict him. They weren't they they weren't negligent in it. It's just that they didn't have DNA at the time. He was pretty good at not leaving a lot of evidence in, in these cases. But they all were similar. They all you know. Oftentimes, it was a car found by the side of the road. Person is beaten to death or killed inside, and he has some sort of flimsy alibi. In the case of his first wife, his big alibi ended up being the person who turned out to be his second one. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I would be remiss not to mention that her name was Dorcas, which was a, a, a surprising name to me. I guess that is a Southern name. But what a, aside from being murdered, she also had to live her life as, with the name Dorcas. I know. Is, I know. That's sad. That was, in, <laughs> you know, when you read, you you say say names and words in your head. And, and yeah, you're just kind of like, that's odd. But who knows? I, I've, I haven't looked at the genealogy records of, you know, Alexander City, Ellen. Alabama to know if that was common or family name That's or right. what. <laughs> exactly. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Kathy. Again, I thought this was a great suggestion. I would highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in in Harper Lee and enjoyed To Kill a Mockingbird and also likes true crime because uh, the story here about the Reverend Willie Maxwell is interesting and it is uh, one of those cases where you can't believe somebody got away with it for as long as they did. Yeah, uh, it brings you back to the movie. What was that? Primal Fear with Richard yeah, Gere. And yeah, yeah. You know, he's doing his job as an attorney. I mean, what yeah, he doing what he was hired to do. <laughs> Big Tom Radney, exactly. So it was a pleasure to talk about it and a pleasure to read. So thank you again. Thank you so much, uh, Dave. This has been a blast. I really appreciate it. For those of you who just listened, please uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or visit OneDrinkBookClub.com to get the recipe for the tequila mockingbird and um, other drinks that we've done on previous shows. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.